Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Greetings from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio. Tom's here, mostly awake. Wake up, Tom. Well, yeah, half awake. I'm sorry. I walked in at 11 o'clock last night, took the dog for a walk. And then on the phone, we have Dr. Larry Steckel from the University of Tennessee. Larry, good to hear from you, man. Hey, yeah, good morning, y'all. Larry's on the phone with us this morning. Going to touch on a couple different things uh, when we get down to the content. We're going to talk about some management, I guess, options or strategies for post-harvest weed control, which is uh, well upon us at this point with corn coming off, and then talk about some pigweeds that that Larry has come upon in West Tennessee. So, Larry, we're getting corn out pretty good down here now. Rain kind of slowed us down into last week, but I think they're starting to ramp back up now. Chance of rain first of the week. Is anything coming off up there for y'all yet? We just started this week. I just now noticed some of the combine starting to run. We're we're a little late this year on every crop, it seems like, but uh, corn's just going. I think we'll have a pretty fair crop. What, what yields are y'all getting? You know, I don't know that I've heard any yields, but I also haven't sought any out either. I mean, I just haven't had those conversations, but the, you know, the corn for the most part looked really good when you could tell before it started drying down, uh, and the soybeans outside of that replanted area that we have where we had the flood in June, soybeans look really good. Most everywhere you go. And there's some have been desiccated, but I, but I haven't personally, and, and I hadn't been anywhere. Tom's been a lot more places than I have recently, but I haven't seen any bean fields cut yet. Tom's thinking. Here either. We're just, just getting yield, but uh, yeah, Tom maybe have heard a few yields, but uh, we're just getting after corn and some of the soybeans are early soybeans. We do have a few early soybeans this year. It's kind of a first for us. They're just starting to turn. So it'll be, be a few weeks yet before we, we know anything there. Do y'all make a habit out of desiccating soybeans before you cut them? Typically, no. Not 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 as much as y'all do. It kind of depends year to year. And how I think maybe how bad maybe the stink bugs are and what other causes there are for, for soybeans staying green. But uh, typically, not a lot of that. I think we might see more this year just because uh, we got pigweed in these fields that we really haven't had in the last few years. Yeah. And, and trying to get those dried down, too. Tom, have you seen any bean fields cut? Places That's I was just been? sitting here thinking. I've not, not that I recall, I have not seen any soybean fields cut. A lot of, a lot of corn, but corn's still all over the board. I was in northeast, northeast Mississippi, far northeast Mississippi last night and ran across three green cornfields and was pretty shocked. Yeah, there's no telling when that was planted. They had a lot of rain no, that's across right. there during that's right. the spring. And it, it looked much like the Delta crop and everything I've seen throughout, even down around Natchez, looked pretty good. Looked like good corn. Well, Larry, before we get started, I always like to ask folks kind of a off-the-wall question. So I was I was thinking about what, what I want to know about Larry Steckel. When you were a kid, did you ever get away with something or did you ever – pin something on a brother, sister, friend down the road or something like that that you didn't get caught doing? <laughs> I don't think I ever did that and not got caught doing. <laughs> so so, so does that mean you were just a good kid or you weren't very good at getting away with stuff? 
I was very poor at getting away with stuff. That was the problem. I couldn't keep a straight face. <laughs> yeah, that was that was my problem too. I'd always crack uh, under interrogation. I would crack. Uh, <laughs> yeah, under interrogation. That's right. <laughs> Tom, I know you got away with it. No, no, I, I guarantee I didn't get away with anything. You got a younger brother, don't you? I have one younger brother. Yeah, so yeah. He, that poor guy, he probably got blasted by his big brother, Tom. Yeah, yeah I really don't recall anything. <laughs> I was sweating it when you were asking Larry that question, thinking, I'm just going to completely lie. I'm perfect angel, Jason. Perfect angel. Never did anything bad. Never got caught with anything. Nope, not Tom. <laughs> not Tom. <laughs> Which is a total lie. <laughs> I can admit to that at this point. All right, Larry, so the... One thing that I want to talk with you about is managing cornfields after we harvest. And, of course, supplies to soybeans, too, but the corn is what's coming off right now. And I know our geography is very different than a lot of your geography, uh, but you got some good Delta counties, too. So I guess tell folks what your strategies are for managing fields after corn harvest, and then I'll throw my two cents in on what I think, and maybe we can have some common ground there. So what we we kind of really stress here is trying to keep the weed seed production down as, as best we can. So, you know, they start cutting here in the next week or two. You, you know, we've got a long time to frost, and all the good weed control you did through the year can go to, go out the window pretty quick if you let it grow up and go to seed. So uh, there's a couple options. One, my favorite is really is, is, is Cremoxone. Because uh, it's just money on pigweed, and it's more important than ever that we we keep the weed seed bank down. And this year in, in Tennessee, we've got a big corn crop as far as acres go, uh, well over a million acres uh, wow. of corn. So we're going to have a lot more that you know real estate that we potentially have have to do something to this fall. But but Cremoxum is definitely one. Uh, another one is just uh, just mowing, and then with a few acres we can till, you know, run a disc over it are all decent options. Now, I don't know about y'all, but a lot of our corn ground, probably 300,000 acres of that million plus, is, it will go to wheat. So if you do put a residual down, keep anything from coming up, you got to be mindful that, you know, some of it can carry in and, and hurt your wheat stand. So you do got to be careful with that. But a shot of Gramoxone can go, cure a lot of ills on, on these morning glories that are coming back, pigweed in particular coming back. Uh, that's catching a lot of light. What about timing, Larry? How, how are you timing that application? Usually uh, within about a week of harvest, if you can. Uh, and you know this, the labor shortage right now makes this probably less likely to happen than ever. Uh, just getting enough people to get the crop out is going to be a struggle this year from what I hear from some farmers. So getting somebody extra to go out and spray or maybe you can get the a retailer to go out and spray for you or something. But uh, those might be the better options to try and get out there about a week. So a little bit of regrowth on that is preferable. Not a lot, but a little bit. So you got something to spray, some green foliage. I feel like we have some fields, and this is the exception rather than the rule, but probably more this year than is uh, ordinary. But we have some fields in the spring when we were making our herbicide applications. Weather got you know, went afoul of them or for whatever reason, we had some fields that didn't get treated until later than what they, you know, should have been treated. Therefore, our control, maybe the treatment had to get changed and our control was poor. 
And so I've had more conversations about spraying vines, for instance, as that canopy opens up. And of course, I think AIM is the preferred treatment for that use pattern. And that's to facilitate harvest. So it may be that in some cases down here, we have more stuff to deal with at that post-harvest timing than what we have in other fields, you know, where we had better weed control. A big difference, obviously, between West Tennessee and us with the Mississippi Delta, at least, the Delta part of our state, is the tillage. All of our corn ground is going to get tillage at some point. So the way I have chosen to uh, address it, and I don't know if this is right or not, but I see where when we have a field and you can even see a disc running in the same field as a combine at times and then they want to get it they want to get it done because they got more corn to cut or you know start cutting beans and then the later and this might apply more to soybeans than corn harvest but those guys that got cotton or even rice they're gonna have to start cutting that too so logistics plays into this big time but my suggestion is to leave that corn straw laying on the on the surface and let it be a mulch and reduce emergence of new pigweeds grasses morning glories rather than disking it up and turning that stuff under and then having basically a clean seed bed for the weeds at that point probably the downfall of that suggestion is that every single operation is different your crop mix is different than my crop mix the geography of your farm is different you know i farm across two two counties but you farm across three counties or four counties and farm size all factors into that and then what you said man the labor wow tom i don't know how many people we've talked to over the last few weeks that have mentioned that as an issue so all that plays into it so larry on the residual herbicide you mentioned that and and of course the caution uh, for wheat we had more wheat this past year than we have had in previous years but still nothing like small you know, small acres like yeah. fifty thousand acres is about i'd, I'd say i'd agree with nas estimates so larry when you say like three hundred thousand acres jason's eyes about popped out of his head wheat aside larry what are your expectations for a residual herbicide in this window you know if i put a residual herbicide out say monday which will be the what the 30th of august what are my expectations for that treatment as far as level of control and length of control at least here because we get our frost quicker than you do we don't need a big window so it depends on what you're using maybe a little bit of valor or Metribuzin, or maybe you think you're going to for sure going to go to corn in that field next year. Maybe some Princep, something like that. You can get three weeks of residual out of those, depending on the rate you use. Pretty easy, maybe four, depending on how wet it is. And at least here, that's about all the window you really need. Uh, to me, the priority is getting the weeds that are good size now killed, because those are the ones that are going to produce the most seed. Anything that comes up here on out, it can still produce seed, but it won't won't be in the numbers of, of the stuff that's existed when you're in the combine through the field. So getting that knocked down and then just, you need, to me, you just need residual for a couple, three weeks because anything that comes up later in that, at least here in Tennessee where we got a fairly early frost date compared to y'all, uh, it's just not, not going to produce that much seed. Yeah, Tom, I would say, our, and I'm not sure, but I would guess our 
30-year average first frost dates probably sometime the first week of November. I'd almost push it back a little bit more than that. I'd say second week for sure. Wow. See, we're like October 20-something typically, so we're quite a bit earlier. My problem, or I say problem, my concern with that residual herbicide at this point is just what you said. It's three weeks. So if I put it out, you know, on the 30th of August, well, I'm on the 19th of September, we can still be in grade A summertime uh, down here on the 19th of of September. And so then you're back in the same boat. But I will say you, you do raise a good point that the even though we can make seed from those later emerging individual plants, the seed per plant is going to be much lower because that plant's going to be smaller and it doesn't have as much time to mature. So I appreciate you making that point. That is a really good point. I don't think that's one thing that I have worked into my conversation about the the length of residual. And I, I would say two or three weeks is probably what I generally tell folks to expect. Probably going to vary with the, the treatment. Another concern with that residual herbicide in this timing is whether you're going to get an incorporating rainfall on it. Yep. We've been catching rains in August this year, but I mean, it's not uncommon to get next to no rainfall. Three, four years ago, it didn't rain at all. And then in August and September was a really dry harvest. So I don't know if we've adequately address this issue or not i am firmly convinced that it varies and it's got to be practical for an individual farm and what works for me might not work for you and down the line but i think everyone agrees that whatever you do the ultimate goal should be to keep weeds from making seed however you choose to do that whether it's with tillage in our geography or with herbicides in your geography or some combination of both i think that that should be the ultimate goal of of any kind of post-harvest weed control practice yeah i I agree we had with electric weed zapper came through they were trying it out some of these veggie growers were and uh, we're going to go back and see how it does as far as keeping them some of these big pigweeds from going to seed. I don't know how good it's going to do, but it sure was fun watching them electrocute the pigweed. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a, a broadcast flame cultivator that would be a good good use there pattern go. for it. Yeah. Fry some. Uh, yeah. At least it'll give you a little satisfaction on taking taking something exactly. to the ground. Exactly. Revenge, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> just, I was going to say revenge killing. <laughs> Speaking of big pigweeds, man, you are the harbinger of bad news on that front. So won't you tell folks what's going on with the pigweeds in West Tennessee? Yeah, Jason. So it's been an interesting but really disappointing year from a pigweed control perspective. We went to a number of sites across the state. Uh, I got a graduate student, uh, Delaney Foster. She's kind of riding herd on this project. But we're just trying to get our arms around how widespread are our oxen resistant palmer amaranth is and 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 the level of resistance we're seeing you know last year we had a couple fields we we tested both in the greenhouse and in the field and it was about 2x fairly low level resistance 3x Uh, but in a couple of these fields now we clearly taken a a a stepwise progression in the level of resistance uh, we're seeing uh i just looking at at the data here uh from this past year we had three locations kind of spread across west tennessee one right across the river from Osceola, Arkansas, and the Mississippi River bottom, and then two over here closer to Jackson. With 22 ounces of Extendamax on two to four-inch Palmer, we're not getting 
Well, we're less than 50% control, 42% control. That would be the, the labeled application rate and the recommended timing for that application. Correct. So that's doing everything by the book with the labeled rate as directed by the label um, and on small pigweed like is directed on the label, which nobody can hardly ever hit. <laughs> pigweeds aren't two to four inches very long. Right. So we're, we're getting a little better than 40% control. That's it uh, with that. Even when we double that rate, and go to 44 ounces, so a full pound of dicamba, uh, we're not even at 60% control. If we double it again and go up to 88 ounces, uh, we're still only getting about 80% control, and that's on two to four inch Palmer pigweed. You know, a lot of farmers, I mean, let's face it, you're lucky to get them when they're six to eight, and, and we're getting about 15 to 20% less control uh, on these biotypes with dicamba and when, when we let them just grow another couple days. So, it, it's really concerning. The other thing that was really concerning, like we hadn't seen this in the past either, uh, usually at higher rates, 88 ounces on up in these fields, we've been killing them, but that wasn't the case this year. We uh, we had some Palmer amaranth where we went up to a gallon of Enlist One, and we had survivors in 176 ounces of Extended Max, and, and we had some survivors. So getting into the triple-digit resistance level, so that, that's a real concern because that means you're seeing a lot higher resistance level. Uh, it's going to be more robust across environments and timings and tank mixes and everything. So that's been uh, really disappointing this year. Um, the other thing that had me really concerned was that Osceola site. Of course, uh, our colleagues in Arkansas confirmed liberty resistance over there last year. So this site isn't too far from there. And, and we had some pretty sketchy liberty performance as well so we weren't controlling it with dicamba we weren't controlling it with liberty we weren't controlling it with 24d so that was a huge concern because where do we go from there one bright spot was even though 24d or enlist one didn't control it and liberty didn't control the palmer amaranth the tank mix did and so that was a bright spot and even with uh dicamba if we went with dicamba on two to four inch palmer and came back within seven days with liberty we were controlling them but so that we can manage it if we get liberty into the mix is what it looks like. But uh, boy, you're going to have to be timing. You're going to have to use that. Uh, you have to hit it just perfect. A lot of the room for error that we've enjoyed with dicamba on Palmer pigweed, we're 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 clearly losing. Yeah, sounds like you're done in a lot of areas. So, what's your plan moving forward, Larry, on your suggested weed control for or your management practices for Palmer? I wish I had a great one, but it's back where we were when Roundup quit and before the dicamba crop. So we're back to there, really relying on pre's. Some of these locations I went to this year, folks just, they got away from using pre's. Uh, they're just relying on you know, Roundup dicamba application, maybe with some outlook or warrant, and that's it. And it's not working. So going back to pre-herbicides, overlaying another one, using max rates of those pre's for the given soil type. Is, is going to be even more important. And it was, something, it was a little bit outside the box thinking, but uh, one of the things that really worked well, we had a lot of growers do it too on, on several thousand acres, but they impregnated their Zidua uh, on some fertilizer and put it on cotton, about six-leaf six cotton. It's kind of a lay-by. Boy, did that work well here. It worked well in my research. It worked well on farmer's fields. Uh, you know, had some growers do thousands of acres of it. Just So stuff like that, we're going to have to start getting residuals in there at higher rates, maybe being a little creative uh, on how we get them on and really having those as the backbone of our weed control and really these 
post-emergence applications of anything kind of being supplemental, not not the thought press of those being the other way around. What's the biology behind that auxin-related resistance? Is, is anybody working on that, Larry? I mean, that's that's the thought that just pops into my head is the biology. So then how widespread could this become? Because we know that it's going to be transmitted through pollen of male plants. Is that a molecular substitution? Do we know that at this point? How is that conferred? Yeah, uh, so good question, and that's something, again, we're trying to trying to come to grips with. So in Kansas, they've identified a biotype of Palmer that was resistant to 2,4-D and pretty doggone tolerant to dicamba as well over there, and they pretty much determined that it was metabolic resistant, cytochrome P450 regulated. For folks listening, that's the bad one, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's the resistance mechanism you don't want without getting in, you know, into a lot of details about physiology there that's the one you don't want yes because it's kind of it's more broad spectrum it, it you know target site resistance which we're all used to is very specific for one herbicide on one week metabolic resistance is more broad spectrum so dicamba resistant my dicamba resistant pigweed is also resistant to 2,4-D so it's kind of crossed there it also just some preliminary stuff we've done has we're seeing less control with dual and with warrant with outlook as well it's not they're not completely not working, but instead of being 21 days residual, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're slipping. We're 17, 18, 19 days residual. So it's basically an enzyme in the plant that ties up the herbicides and doesn't allow them to get to where they need to be to kill the wheat. I just was going to add that we all have to remember that Mother Nature is kind of a balancing act. So you're talking about a numbers issue. The more you leave in a field, the greater chance you have of increasing the likelihood of that moving over a much larger area. That's not something, I mean, biology makes people snooze. Some of us just absolutely loved it in high school and then decided to further our understanding of it and move a little, and, and I don't, I won't act like I know everything about biology, but that's the part that just fascinates me at this point. It, it's hard to get that across. It's just Charles Darwin's theory on display, and I think people kind of think evolution, and they think of dinosaurs. They take millions of years. Now, uh, everybody in our, whether you're a pathologist or a weed scientist, you know what happens in in months, <laughs> almost measured in months, uh, and not hardly years, uh, when you're basically using one herbicide over every acre uh, repeatedly. You're going to find those individuals that, for whatever reason, can handle the herbicide or the fungicide. And uh, pretty soon they're the predominant biotype you've got you've got to deal with. It's the needle in the stack of needles, man. It is exactly. Rewind the clock, two thousand five, six, back in there when we started finding the glyphosate resistant Palmer populations. To me, this feels a lot like that because my recollection of that at the time, and I'd only been in Mississippi a short time when we found the the first ones here. But I feel like we went zero to 60 just overnight. One year we had a few inside the levee, and the next year, maybe it wasn't the very next year, but within two years, it was just game over. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of where we, I feel we are too, right there, that kind of that window. I'm trying to think back to the roundup when we lost roundup, and it seems similar to that. If I'm not mistaken, you know, I'd have to go back and look, but I think we had you on here about this time last year talking about about the same thing, and it was what you had described. You had a couple of locations that were questionable, and now, 
you know, fast forward 12 months and you've got what amounts to a disaster brewing in West Tennessee. We're definitely on the start. I had a retailer call me I think it was this last week and he wasn't hi, hello. It, it was three words. Dicamba is done is what he told me. <laughs> so, and I told him, well, I don't, you know, I don't think it's the end, but I think it's the beginning of the end of, of that herbicide being effective on pigweed. Uh, that's that's definitely where we are. You know, a couple more years of this, and we're going to have the grown-up fields stem the stern that we got to disc up and replant. We'll be right back where we were with Roundup. The only bright spot is, you know, in 2005-06, we didn't have Liberty. Yeah. So we can put Liberty on these and, and can help a lot. Uh, we didn't have Zidua, pyroxisophone, very effective residual herbicide so we do got a few other tools but still it's it's going to be a struggle larry we also didn't have ppo resistant palmer either and that's still hanging that's right. out there and for us that's right we honestly don't know how bad that particular problem is down here because we dealt with it for one year and then extend was commercialized and we had a rapid adoption of that technology so we don't have a, a real good grasp of how intense the PPO resistant problem is in uh, the Delta in Mississippi. Yeah, so that was, we jumped on PPOs pretty hard or earlier and they carried us a couple of years and then they just completely lost it. It seemed like overnight. I think that was like a 2011 and then we were really in a fix. So we were struggling until the dicamba trade came out and now we're full circle again. So, I'm not sure. Looking for the next servo bullet, I don't. I don't really see one over the horizon. Yeah, man, I don't, I don't either. So, Larry, you've been down here a lot, and you know what our farms look like. What would you tell a guy in the Delta in Mississippi? Yeah, well, I think one thing that does help y'all a little bit is you got a lot more tillage, and so uh, I think that does help. And you haven't been leaning on dicamba like we have for 20 years, so we've been priming the pump. Virtually every acre has gotten dicamba since 2000, trying to manage mayor's tail on all our no-till acres. And inadvertently, we were exposing a lot of pigweed to, to dicamba. So I think our tolerance level right out of the gate was higher than most of y'all. So I think you probably got a few more years before it's an issue, but it, it's definitely going to be around the corner. So, you know, keep doing what you're doing as far as tillage. Uh, if you've backed off on some of these pre-emergent herbicides because dicamba's worked so well, uh, get back to them. Get another mode of action in there that's going to work. For so the guys with cotton, I know they hate hoods, but get those back out. Those can be a great way to go out there and, and knock pigweed down and keep them going to seed that, that might get by dicamba. And if you're starting to see some escapes in some fields, you know, if it's just a patch here and there, gosh, go out and chop them out. Anything you can do to delay a year or two is, is going to be big beneficial to you down the road. It's not only escapes in fields, Larry. It's the stuff along field edges, along the roadside that the road crew runs over. And and I just I, I I picture a lot of that in my head as I run around the state this time of the year because there are a lot of places that we're managing pigweed in the field, but we're missing it along something that's ten feet out of the field. It's on a field border. My neighbor sprays his the ditch in front of his house with Roundup, obviously. <laughs> then you got these. <laughs> dozen pigweeds that are, are there, green as a gourd, all this dead grass. Yeah, I wonder why, wonder wonder why, why those, those didn't yeah, die. Why would those die? I don't, I don't know, man. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's, a, that's, that's peculiar. 
our, our regular listeners, we really appreciate this. You know, this is pretty important, and this topic is definitely important. I think this is something that, you know, Jason spends a lot of time thinking about this time of year, and we talk about it. But, you know, keep, keep the comments up. Continue to listen. You know, put your friends on that. Follow us on Twitter. Send us messages. Keep up the comments. That's definitely helpful from our standpoint. And, and Larry, we really appreciate the content because that's certainly a, a, a pretty scary topic at this point. Good talking to you all. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.